John Norton, Chapter Four of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. On the morning of the meet of the hounds, he was called an hour earlier. He drank a cup of tea and ate a piece of dry toast in a back room. The dining room was full of servants who laid out a long table rich with comestibles and glittering with glass. Mrs. Norton and Kitty were upstairs dressing. He wandered into the drawing-room and viewed the dead, cumbrous furniture, the two cabinets bright with brass and veneer. He stood at the window, staring. It was raining. The yellow of the falling leaves was hidden in grey mist. This weather will keep many away, so much the better. There will be too many as it is. I wonder who this can be. A melancholy brougham passed up the drive. There were three old maids, all looking sweetly alike. One was a cripple who walked with crutches, and her smile was the best and the gayest imaginable smile. How little material welfare has to do with your happiness, thought John. There is one whose path is the narrowest, and she is happier and better than I and then the three sweet old maids talked with their cousin of the weather, and they all wondered, a sweet feminine wonderment, if he would see a girl that day whom he would marry. Presently the house was full of people. The passage was full of girls. A few men sat at breakfast at the end of the long table. Some redcoats passed. The huntsman stopped in front of the house. The dog sniffed here and there, the whips trotted their horses and drove them back. Get together, get together, get back there. Woodland beauty, come up here. The hounds rolled on the grass and leaned their four paws on the railings, willing to be caressed. Now, John, try and make yourself agreeable. Go over and talk to some of the young ladies. Why do you dress yourself in that way? Have you no other coat? You look like a young priest." Look at that young man over there, how nicely dressed he is. I wish you would let your moustache grow. It would improve you immensely. With these and similar remarks whispered to him, Mrs. Norton continued to exasperate her son until the servants announced that lunch was ready. Take in Mrs. So-and-so, she said to John, who would fain have escaped from the melting glances of the lady in the long sealskin. He offered her his arm with an air of resignation, and set to work valiantly to carve a large turkey. As soon as the servants had cleared away, after one set another came, and although the meat was a small one, John took six ladies in to lunch. About half-past three the men adjourned to the billiard-room to smoke. The numerous girls followed and with their arms round each other's waists and interlacing fingers they grouped themselves about the room at five the huntsman returned and much to his annoyance john had to furnish them with a change of clothes there was tea in the drawing-room and soon after the visitors began to take their leave the wind blew very coldly the roosting rooks rose out of the branches, and the carriages rolled into the night. But still a remnant of visitors stood on the steps talking to John. He felt very ill, 
and now a long sharp pain had grown through his left side and momentarily it became more and more difficult to exchange polite words and smiles the footman stood waiting by the open door the horses champed their bits the green of the park was dark and a group of girls moved about the loggia wheels grated on the gravel all were gone the butler shut the door and john went to the library fire there his mother found him she saw that something was seriously the matter he was helped up to bed and the doctor sent for for more than a week he suffered he lay bent over unable to straighten himself as if a nerve had been wound up too tightly in the left side he was fed on gruel and beef tea the room was kept very warm it was not until the twelfth day that he was taken out of bed you have had a narrow escape the doctor said to john who well wrapped up lay back looking very pale and weak before a blazing fire it was lucky i was sent for twenty-four hours later i would not have answered for your life i was delirious was i not yes you cursed and swore fearfully at us when we rolled you up in the mustard plaster it was very hot and must have burnt you it has scarcely left a bit of skin on me but did i use very bad language i suppose i could not help it i was delirious was i not yes slightly i remember and if i remember right i used very bad language but people when they are delirious do not know what they say is not that so doctor if they are really delirious they do not remember but you were only slightly delirious you were maddened by the pain occasioned by the pungency of the blaster yes but do you think i knew what i was saying you must have known what you were saying because you remember what you said but could i be held accountable for what i said accountable well i hardly know what you mean you were certainly not in the full possession of your senses your mother mrs norton was very much shocked but i told her that you were not accountable for what you said then i could not be held accountable i did not know what i was saying i don't think you did exactly people in a passion don't know what they say ah yes but we are answerable for sins committed in the heat of passion we should restrain our passion we were wrong in the first instance in giving way to passion but i was ill it was not exactly passion and i was very near death i had a narrow escape doctor yes i think i can call it a narrow escape the voices ceased the curtains were rosy with lamplight and conscious awoke in the languors of convalescent hours i stood on the verge of death the whisper died away john was still very weak and he had not strength to think with much insistence but now and then remembrance surprised him suddenly like pain it came unexpectedly he knew not whence or how but he could not choose but listen was he responsible for those words he could remember them all now each like a burning arrow lacerated his bosom and he pulled them to and fro he could not distinguish the instantaneous sensation of wrong that had flashed on his excited mind in the moment of his sinning 
Then he could think no more, and in the twilight of contrition he dreamed vaguely of God's great goodness, of penance, of ideal atonements, and as strength returned, remembrance of his blasphemies grew stronger and fiercer, and often as he lay on his pillow, his thoughts passing in long procession, his soul would leap into intense suffering. I stood on the verge of death with blasphemies on my tongue. I might have been called to confront my Maker with horrible blasphemies in my heart and on my tongue, but He, in His divine goodness, spared me. He gave me time to repent. Am I answerable, O oh my God, for those dreadful words that I uttered against Thee, because I suffered a little pain? Against Thee, who once died on the cross to save me, O oh God, Lord, in thine infinite mercy look down on me, on me. Vouchsafe me thy mercy, O oh my God, for I was weak. My sin is loathsome. I prostrate myself before thee. I cry aloud for mercy. Then, seeing Christ amid his white millions of youths, beautiful singing saints, gold curls and gold aureolas, lifted throats and form of harp and dulcima he fell prone in great bitterness on the misery of earthly life his happiness and ambitions appeared to him less than the scattering of a little sand on the seashore joy is passion passion is suffering we cannot desire what we possess therefore desire is rebellion prolonged indefinitely against the realities of existence when we attain the object of our desire, we must perforce neglect it in favor of something still unknown, and so we progress from illusion to illusion. The winds of folly and desolation howl about us, the sorrows of happiness are the worst to bear, and the wise soon learn that there is nothing to dream of but the end of desire. God is the one ideal, the church the one shelter from the incurable misery of life. The life of the cloister is far from the meanness of life, and, oh, the voices of chanting boys, the cloud of incense, and the Latin hymn afloat on the tumult of the organ. In such religious aestheticisms, the soul of John Morton had long slumbered, but now it awoke in remorse and pain, and repulsing its habitual exaltations as if they were sins, he turned to the primal idea of the vileness of this life, and its sole utility in enabling him to gain heaven. A pessimist, he admitted himself to be so far as this world was concerned. But the manifestations of modern pessimism were checked by constitutional mysticity, schopenhauer when he overstepped the line ruled by the church was repulsed from him john norton's faith had suffered nothing the severest and most violent shocks had come from another side a side which none would guess so complex and contradictory are the involutions of the human brain hellenism greek culture and ideal academic groves young disciples, Plato and Socrates, the august nakedness of the gods were equal, or almost equal, in his mind, with the lacerated bodies of meagre saints, and his heart wavered between the temple of simple lines and the cathedral of a thousand arches. 
Once there had been a sharp struggle, but Christ, not Apollo, had been the victor, and the great cross in the bedroom of Stanton College overshadowed the beautiful slim body in which divinity seemed to circulate like blood and this photograph was all that now remained of much youthful anguish and much temptation a fact to note is that his sense of reality had always remained in a rudimentary state it was as it were diffused over the world and mankind for instance his belief in the misery and degradation of earthly life and the natural bestiality of man was incurable but of this or that individual he had no opinion he was to john norton a blank sheet of paper to which he could not affix even a title his childhood had been one of tumult and sorrow the different and dissident ideals growing up in his heart and striving for the mastery had torn and tortured him and he had long lain as upon a mental rack ignorance of the material laws of existence had extended even into his sixteenth year and when bit by bit the veil fell and he understood he was filled with loathing of life and mad desire to wash himself free of its stain and it was this very hatred of natural flesh that had precipitated a perilous worship of deified flesh but the gothic cathedral had intervened he had been taken by the beauty of its architecture and the beauty of its gregorian chant but now he realized if not in all its truth at least in part that his love of god had only taken the form of a gratification of the senses a sensuality higher but as intense as those which he so much reproved his life had been but a sin an abomination and as a woman rising from a bed of smallpox shrinks from destroying the fair remembrance of her face by pursuing the traces of the disease through every feature he hid his face in his hands and called for forgiveness for escape from the endless record of his conscience he saw the hell which awaits him who blasphemes to the verge of that hell he had drifted he pictured himself lost in eternal torment the christ he saw had grown pitiless he saw christ standing in judgment amid a white million of youths too weak to think clearly he sat dreaming the blazing fire decorated the darkness and the twilight shed upon curtains purfled with birds and petals he sat his head resting on his large strong fingers pining for sharp-edged medieval tables and antique lamps the soft diffused light of the paper-shaded lamp jarred his intimate sense of things however dim the light of his antique lamps their beautiful shapes were always an admonition and took his thoughts back to the age he loved an age of temples and disciples recollection of plato floated upon his weak brain and he remembered that the great philosopher had said that there were men who were half women and that these men must perforce delight in the society of women that there were men too who were wholly men and that these perforce could find neither pleasure nor interest away from their own sex he had always felt himself to be wholly male 
and this was why the present age so essentially the age of women was repellent to him his thoughts floated from greece to palestine and looking into the blaze he saw himself bearing the banner of the cross into the land of the infidel fighting with lance and sword for the sepulchre he saw the saracen and trembling with aspiration he heard the great theme of salvation to the saviour sung by the basses by the tenors by the altos it was held by a divine boy's voice for four bars high up in the cupola and the belief theme in harp arpeggios rained down like manna on the bent heads of the knights awaking a little his thoughts returned to the consideration of his present condition he had been ill death had been by his bedside and in that awful moment he had blasphemed he could conceive nothing more terrible and he thanked god for his great mercy if worldly life was a peril he must fly from that peril the salvation of his soul must be his first consideration his thoughts lapsed into dreams dreams of isle and cloister arches and legended panes palms rose in great curls like the sky and beautiful harmonies of voices were gathered together grouped and single voices now the white of the treble now the purple of the bass and these the souls of the carven stone like birds hovering like birds in swift flight like birds poising floated from the arches then the organ intoned the mass of gregorian and the chant of the mass moved amid the opulence of gold vestments the latter responses filled the ear and at the end of long abstinences the holy oil came like a bliss that never dies in the ecstasy of ordination it seemed to him that the very savour and spirit of god had descended upon him End of John Norton, Chapter 4, Recording by James Carson.